This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSE published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, I know you probably didn't get into teaching to prepare students for the funds of standardized testing, right? Isn't that why everyone gets involved in teaching? I know, right? Like, I just want to help them achieve this fairly meaningless and mundane goal of mastering somewhat, you know, inert facts about history. That's funny that you say mastering, too. Like, I feel like mastering is like, I don't, I don't know if my students actually master my content. Right. I think they're like developing learners, but I don't feel like I have mastery over everything, too. Like, I'm also kind of learning and growing. We probably need an entire episode just on like words that are thrown around in education in (laughs) careless ways, like mastering and even learning. I always think of like we say, oh, the student learned this because they got it right on a test. And, it, you know, they might have just guessed and learned how to take tests. But but I guess what I was getting at um, more so, (laughs) you know, I think we both see social studies. And I know a reason I want to be a socialist teacher is I want to make the world a better place. Right. I want a more just world. Do you feel like you're able to do that in your classes with all the testing and requirements? Okay. So we don't have testing in Massachusetts at this point, but that's a really tough question. Do I help create a, a more just world? Are they, and are they ready to help create a more just world? I would love to say yes, because I feel like everyone would. Like that's kind of what we want. But man, that's a lot of pressure on me, man. But I just don't know, like, are they totally doing it? Am I just going through my content? Like, I try to teach them things like how to critically think and how to question things. But I don't know. And that question really fills me with dread, Daniel. Well, I mean, more specifically, like, are any of your students on the UN (laughs) Security Council? Have any of your students passed uh, civil rights legislation? You know, those would be good barometers to see if your students are changing the world. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but I you can change it, the world on a small level oh okay okay it doesn't have to all be uh grand grand solutions <laughs> yes why can't something I, just be little i think it is a a, a difficult thing because you know we have students who are often one of their many classes or teachers they see during a day they have lots of other influences in their life so it's it is hard to nail down like what kinds of differences do our does our teaching make right. especially if we're trying like if we have that as an aim as a teacher it's hard yeah It is really hard. So fortunately today, we have a guest who kind of investigated this issue a little bit. Um, She looked at teachers who wanted to make a more just world and kind of figured out what was happening there. And so we would like to welcome into the podcast, Hillary Parkhouse. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me on the podcast. Hillary, we are thrilled that you are here. I'm thrilled to be here. Hillary, can you start by telling us a little bit about your background in education? 
Yes, I'm currently an assistant professor in the Department of Teaching and Learning at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. Before pursuing my PhD at UNC Chapel Hill, I was a high school social studies and English as a second language teacher in a uh, neighborhood in New York City called Washington Heights. It's a predominantly Dominican neighborhood. I've um, been there. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I stayed in New York one time and I ran through it. It was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually for a year before that, I taught in the Dominican Republic. It's sort of a coincidence. Um, I joke about following Dominicans, but um, I um, taught at a high school there, social studies and um, English literature, and then did the New York City Teaching Fellows Program and was certified to teach ESL. So they placed me in a neighborhood with a lot of English language learners. Hillary, can you tell us a little bit more what, what your experiences in the classroom were like? Yes. So what kind of led me to want to pursue a PhD was seeing that I had many students who were extremely bright, very passionate, hardworking, and they weren't really given the same opportunities that I know other kids um, are given, even in the kind of regular high school I went to outside of Atlanta. It was a suburban high school, pretty middle class, but even I just could see disparities between the opportunities that students in my school had and the students that I was teaching. And things like seeing that despite how intelligent and hardworking they were, they might not achieve great scores on SATs um, and things like that. And so I sort of got interested in the cultural biases we have in our educational system and um, what's going on behind the scenes that's producing such vast disparities. And how did you work to create a more just world? Oh, in my own classroom? Yes. Yeah, and in law in general. You're on the spot now. Oh, yeah. No, I'll be honest. I mean, I my certification was in teaching English as a second language. So my knowledge of history was um, embarrassingly limited for what I would like to have done. I would like to have been more like the teacher I, I um, write about in the paper, Miss Ray, who just had you know, a wealth of knowledge about the long civil rights movement and all the different organizations and the different strategies used during, you know, the 1950s and 1960s, African-American civil rights movement, things like that, that I just didn't have that knowledge of. So, you know, I tried to create a more just world by um, modeling um, openness to new ideas and different perspectives to my students and, um, and challenging, you know, things that we take for granted but I definitely don't think I was a model of critical pedagogy, I'm sad to say. <laughs> well, I think all teachers struggle with these things. I, I know even for me, moving to a social studies position in Texas, I had such a lack of, of knowledge of Texas history. I'd never taken it. And so to figure out what did you know socially just social studies curriculum look like in Texas meant I had to learn like what the curriculum was and what was excluded. And that's a real process because it's mm -hmm. hard to, you know, there's some obvious areas where you often have uh, people of color, color historically marginalized in the curriculum, but you still have to have a lot more knowledge to be able to do anything meaningful. So it's a difficult journey for all of us. So mm -hmm. um, having said that, uh, you've obviously been thinking and working on this a lot because you did something that's not very easy. You published in theory and research in social education. So congratulations on your publication. Thank you. <laughs> and the publication is titled Pedagogies of Naming Questioning and Demystification, a study of two critical U.S. history classrooms. Can you tell us about the study? Yes. Um, so the impetus behind the study was I 
learned about this idea of critical pedagogy, I think once I started a PhD. So it's something that gets tossed around a lot within the ivory tower. And I know that teachers are implementing elements of critical pedagogy in their classrooms all the time. But um, it's not a concept that maybe is immediately accessible to teachers. The way it's written about tends to be from a very lofty kind of macro political analysis of um, how our school systems reproduce social inequalities, things like that, but not so much, um, you know, more specific guidance of what that looks like in the classroom, what a teacher is supposed to do with that information. Right. Very little critical theory writing says, take this standard and make this critical, right? Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, can, and I, can, you, okay. can you tell us a little about the critical theory for our audience that's not as familiar, like some of the critical theory ideas or theorists that were influential in your in your work? Yes. Um, so Paulo Freire is the probably scholar most associated with critical pedagogy. He um, was a Brazilian educator of adults in rural Brazil and wrote a book in 1970 called Pedagogy of the Oppressed that is beautiful and um, and is inspired countless people throughout the world um, and continues to inspire people, you know, 50 years after it was written. And I think part of the reason is because it's written in a, in an abstract way that can appeal to so many people. So then the flip side of that is that it doesn't have guidance, as you said, to a high school history teacher on what that kind of might look like in the classroom. And of course, there's not one set of critical pedagogy practices. The whole idea is it's supposed to be based in the student's immediate present realities. So it needs to be very different in different settings. And so that was another thing I tried to do in this paper is show two examples to kind of show how the different contexts of the two classrooms shaped how each teacher took on a different approach to critical pedagogy to show that it, it should be distinct and there are different ways to go about it. And to, to your point, if you read Paula Friere, you'll... It's very inspiring. I remember when I read it as a graduate student, just feeling like this makes sense because the banking model of education he puts forth feels like schools that were sticking, were depositing, you know, little unimportant pieces of information into kids' heads. And he advocated for a liberatory uh, education with love at the center. It's very flowery language later in it. And it was very inspiring to me. Yeah. Like liberatory? Yeah, like like emancipatory. Liberate. Emancipatory. Liberate. Oh. Okay. <laughs> like yeah, liberation. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so but it is hard to know what does that actually look like. You can read that whole thing, have the ideas, but then it doesn't give you a lot of guidance besides like having meaningful, you know, relationships with your students and being able to learn from them and learn from their experiences. Um, and so how teachers put this into practice is something we need to understand more. And that's what you looked at, right? Right. Yeah. And especially in the context of a standardized curriculum and high stakes tests at the end of the year, what are teachers doing despite those constraints to kind of infuse those ideas of anti-oppression and, um, learning alongside students and having students serve as teachers and these kind of elements of critical pedagogy, even in highly constrained contexts. So your your study is looking at two teachers, Miss Ray and Miss Bowling. Correct. And what did you learn from them? What how are they teaching critical critical theory? 
So they, Miss Ray was in a predominantly black school. Her classroom had three white students, three um, Latina young women, and then the rest were African American. And she kind of took an African American studies lens to her whole U.S. history class. She noticed that her students kind of hesitated to talk about race for probably a variety of reasons, one of which may have been that she was a white teacher herself, but but also I think this sense of, that it's impolite or could be offensive. And so she, from day one, talked openly about race to kind of normalize that in her classroom. She talked about people who are struggling for equality um, and the sort of oppressive systems that were in place in, in each period, but also the organized resistance to each of those instances of oppression. So that's kind of how she uh, infused ideas of critical pedagogy in her teaching. And then Miss Bowling had a more diverse class. It was about one third white, one third black, one third Latinx. And she felt that students would be more receptive to hearing about injustices and especially more privileged students maybe being challenged on them if things came from their peers rather than the teacher. And so she really just used questioning. That's where the in the title, the pedagogy of questioning comes in in her class is just really prodding students to always be questioning anything they take for granted, messages they're receiving from the media or peers or wherever. So she did a lot of kind of like critical media literacy lessons. I can give one example after the um, mysterious death of Freddie Gray, an unarmed black man in Baltimore. There were protests in, in Baltimore and she showed projected four images from those protests and asked students which of the images they were more likely to see in the news. And on the left were, um, you know, looting and this kind of thing. And then on the right was a young African American boy handing a white police officer a water bottle and then also a peaceful march of a church congregation. And so students said, well, we see the, the images on the left much more often in the news. I didn't see anything like that on the right. And so then they talked about, well, what are the effects of that on people's perceptions of, you know, people living in Baltimore, um, black people? So that's kind of one way she opened up space for students to practice questioning these kind of things. In this case, did she uh, try to make explicit connections to the curriculum or was she just okay with this is an important current event? We're going to deal with this on its own terms. Yeah, that's a great question. In that case, she um, she didn't tie it into a history lesson. She did kind of go on to analyze some maps of housing vacancies in Baltimore and Freddie Gray's neighborhood. So she was still developing some, obviously some critical literacy skills that are valuable across curriculum, but some other kind of skills, although not connected to a particular history lesson. Miss Ray actually the same day taught a lesson that linked those Baltimore riots to the Baltimore riots of 1861 and 1968 as a way to kind of tie in so you you talk in your title about pedagogies of naming, questioning, and mystification. And I think I understand naming is to bring forth these problems, right, mm-hmm. into the right. classroom, to give them names, to talk about them. Questioning is to allow students that space. And what do you mean by demystification? Um, that is kind of the example I was just giving with the images of the Baltimore protests to get students to analyze 
hidden messages behind things, ideologies that we maybe just accept as common sense. So another example from this raised classroom is while studying second wave feminism, students looked at advertisements from the 1960s and 70s and also today and had to analyze what was sexist in the advertisements. And, and unfortunately, a lot of times they weren't really able to, to pinpoint it. So that was another example of sort of demystifying lesson. So in that case, they weren't able to pinpoint it. Did, did she just continue to ask them questions about it? Did she then go into a mode of like showing them modeling like some of those uh, critical lenses that they could use? How did she, you know, overcome that? Yeah, she just guided them along sort of breaking down the message. So for example, one advertisement was a woman in a slinky red dress, some designer dress, and the caption was, don't worry, ladies, if your husband is, or if he is nervous about the price tag, the dress also comes in black or something like that. So, and students had a hard time understanding what was sexist in that message. So kind of asking, well, what's kind of behind this caption? What are the assumptions being made about who paid for the dress or, you know, uh, the woman's reaction if her husband were to die from the price tag, these kinds of things. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't that get it. Me, I didn't get oh, it. That- <laughs> Black to his Maybe if you saw the advertisement, it would help. Yeah. Well, that, no, that's interesting. I've often used the cult of domesticity characteristics, which were kind of these expectations, particularly of white women in like the early 1800s. And it's amazing how much those characteristics are still present in, in modern advertising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are the lessons that you want to exemplify with these two two teachers? Um, well, one is for teachers to know that critical pedagogy may not be all that far from what they're already doing, that even in just trying to get students to analyze you know, root causes of contemporary or historical inequalities is critical pedagogy. So one aim I had with the paper was to, as I said, take critical pedagogy out of the ivory tower and show what it can look like in classrooms and different ways that it can look in classrooms. Another aim I had was showing the students' responses because there's some fear, you know, if we talk about all these injustices, maybe students are going to become disillusioned, frustrated, uh, especially maybe students from marginalized backgrounds. And in this case, and I talk about this more in other papers, the students' responses, the students really appreciated the teachers' candor. They said, you know, I had teachers in the past that kind of sugarcoated how bad things really were for slaves or during the Jim Crow era. And these teachers really told it like it is. And they felt they could trust these teachers more. And then another, you know, critical pedagogy is often also criticized for potentially being indoctrinating, right? They're telling students to think in a certain generally leftist way about the world. And I also wanted these examples of these two classrooms to show, you know, in Miss Ray's case, she was really teaching facts about history, you know, that don't get taught often in traditional U.S. history curriculum. For example, she taught the Lavender Scare during the 1950s, which I'm embarrassed to say I did not teach my students, which which was when uh, Eisenhower banned federal employment of LGBT individuals in the federal government. So just by teaching that, which is often not taught in the curriculum that wasn't in the New York State um, curriculum, 
she's using critical pedagogy while not indoctrinating students to believe a certain way about the world. And then in Miss Bowling's case, you know, she was trying to get her students to question everything. So again, question anything, left, right, center, anything. <laughs> so, so I hope to alleviate some of those concerns about the ways critical pedagogy could be too political, too radical or indoctrinating. The Lavender Scare actually came up in one of our recent podcasts with JB. Oh, Mayo. I haven't listened to that one yet. And and part of that was, you know, I think if you look at textbooks and the curriculum as political statements um, and you start to see why do they not include the Lavender Scare, then we can talk about that null curriculum, right? That Mm -hmm. pulling that curriculum out of the null bin and bringing it into classrooms. But talk about like, why are people fearful of talking about this? Because a lot of people aren't committed to equal rights for LGBTQ uh, community members. And so uh, those become very points of critical theory in themselves. And I think when I think about critical theory, I think the first step is just um, being able to center students' experiences and our social world in the classroom and using those, thinking of those as ways to get at our curriculum, because that is so different. That's what's so difficult, I think, for teachers is there often feels you either feel uh, pressure because of testing or just pressure because of school norms um, to teach the curriculum that's given to you. And so that becomes the center of activities. That's everything. But that's why people feel distanced from it, because a lot of kids don't care about things that happened 100 years. We have to ground it somewhat in their experiences. And part of that is trusting students. And I know that took me several years to start to just really sit back as a teacher. I was always worried like my students would say racist and sexist things. And it took me a little while to get over that, that those are learning opportunities. And you don't have, and most times, other students in the classroom will actually, if you just kind of are sit back, only jump in, you know, when someone's being dehumanized or in something like that, they will often correct each other, challenge each other. And that's more productive oftentimes for everyone moving forward in, in those kinds of discussions. Yeah, definitely. That's democratic education, you know, helping prepare citizens. So were the were the teachers particularly good at leading discussions? I've been thinking a lot about what skills teachers need to lead good discussions. Yeah, um, they were. And I think part of, part of it is creating an atmosphere where students felt really comfortable sharing their perspectives and knowing that if I say something that maybe another student is gonna take issue with, or maybe I say something offensive, not meaning to, knowing that you have a culture where that's gonna be okay, we're gonna talk it out and we're, we'll be able to move on. So I think that was the major thing both teachers did was, to um, create as many opportunities for controversial issues, discussions as possible so that over time students felt comfortable, didn't feel that these issues were too sensitive to talk about in the classroom anymore. So the teachers are still going through, so it seems like they're teaching a U.S. they're teaching U.S. curriculum and they're still going through like the chronology. They're just making sure that they are naming these things, having students question it and bringing like their different critical lenses into the history. So it's not like they're kind of going off on their own and it's kind of this class that's doing whatever the teacher's whims. They are still going through the chronology. They're just kind of being guided through in a very specific way. Yes, definitely. That's the other thing I wanted to show with the this article because a lot of the critical pedagogy literature is in English education where teachers might maybe have more flexibility with the curriculum in terms of when they teach what or what they teach and with U.S. history, you know, you got to cover and they had high stakes tests at the end of the year. So they had to cover 
from point A to point B. So I wanted to show how teachers are making space for critical pedagogy, even while they are teaching the standard curriculum. I really wish we could have more thematic teaching, though, in social studies. I mean, you can still do thematic teaching chronologically, um, where you look at issues of, of, of peace and war, and you look at issues of racism through history. And anyway, that's just, I wish we could do that. And I think we could. Yeah. And I wish instead of high stakes tests, there was high stake tests where people just had a stake at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Although, to be honest with you, my last stake was five years ago in Oklahoma City, and it was the best stake of my life. We talked about this before. And also my last stake. (laughs) Because why would I have anything else? I've been watching Um, a lot of Parks and Rec, so I've been thinking about stakes a lot from Ron Swanson's character. (laughs) I did, I did openly weep when I saw the, um, uh, great, what's the, the great, the hole in the ground? Oh, the pit? Uh, The pit? Yeah, what's the pit? No, not that pit, like the, Uh, like the Columbia River, I think, carved it out over years. It's big. It's a canyon. It's a great, Grand Canyon, yeah. I did openly weep at the Grand Canyon because Ron Swanson said I could. Also, I was kind of tired. <laughs> I have my own stuff going on, so. uh, Hillary, can you tell us um, what did, what did takeaways do you have for classroom teachers who would like to do critical work in, in in their classrooms? I think, as you said, part of it is knowing your students and what their present realities are. What's bothering them right now? What are they concerned about? The year that um, I did the study was the year of Freddie Gray's death. Um, the grand jury decided not to indict the officer who killed Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. So the, so police violence against black people were on the minds of the students. Um, you know, now with Me Too movement, ad, youth advocacy around gun control, these things might be topics that your students are interested in outside the classroom that you can bring in and easily connect to history curriculum. Well, thank you, Hillary Parkhouse, for chatting with us today. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Where can listeners find you and your work online? Um, you can find me at Twitter at H.E. Parkhouse. My VCU page has my latest publications, and I'm also on ResearchGate. I'm on Facebook, but it's mostly toddler photos, so I don't know how helpful oh. that is to anyone. <laughs> I That's enjoy a- toddler photos. <laughs> Friend me. <laughs> well, we will definitely link to all of those uh, <laughs> online and maybe just include some toddler photos in the show notes. Um, so, <laughs> but thank you again for joining us. We really enjoyed talking to you and learning from your research. And we certainly hope to continue the discussion on Twitter, on Facebook, in the comments section. We can just bring up, people can just bring up questions. You post a toddler picture and they can ask questions about your articles there. Ooh, Sounds good. Questions, yes. And I want to thank you all for having this podcast. It's such a great service that you provide to educators to have accessible, you know, free information about what's going on in academia they might not be able to access otherwise. So thanks for this important work you do. Wow. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, that was nice. I don't know if anyone's ever said something I've done is important. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Your work is very important. Thank you. <laughs> Lots of other words for my work. I don't know if important was one of them. Oh, boy. Okay, go ahead, Michael. So at the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat and share, share a toddler photo, tweet us at Visions of Ed. 
And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere you want us to be. Yeah, that'll be interesting if we start getting sent toddler photos on Twitter. (laughs) Uh, You can also appreciate the podcast by writing us a five-star review. We are going to read a bundle of those on the air, so get yours in. It does help people find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.